Well, from our previous study of the book of the prophet Haggai, we got a pretty good sense of uh, how life was challenging for the church in the year 520 B.C. Uh, discouragement uh, was widespread, uh, hanging heavy in the air in and around Jerusalem. The returned remnant faced a daily struggle as they, as they grappled, as they wrestled with the, the, the painful contrast between uh, the glories of the past and the humiliation of the post-exilic present. And in this backwater province of the Persian Empire, this fledgling community of God's covenant people was struggling financially, uh, frustrated politically, and flagging spiritually. Uh, the remnant had returned from uh, the exile to their homeland, but so little of what they expected had been realized. And while so much uh, remained elusive, the horizons looked bleak and the hopes were dashed and disillusionment and cynicism had set in. People were thinking, why struggle to accomplish great things for the Lord when the days in which you lived were self-evidently the days of small things? So that, in short, was Israel's situation in this year 520 B.C., a state of discouragement, yearning for renewal, uh, in dire need of a fresh start. And the books of Haggai and Zechariah address God's people in, in just this situation, into this atmosphere or age of discouragement. The word of the Lord comes to these two prophets to be preached to the people of God. Haggai, you may recall, began preaching in the six months of the second year of King Darius. And now Zechariah we're told, began preaching in the eighth month of the same year. So their ministries overlap. And together, the Bible says, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And together, they worked in advancing the rebuilding of the temple and spiritual renewal. While Haggai's ministry spanned a brief four months, Zechariah's ministry extended over uh, a more expansive three-year period. And his message soared to even greater heights than Haggai's, in, in, and we'll, we'll see this in weeks to come, but in, in visions and uh, revelations, unveilings, which serve really to, to lift the eyes of the people of God uh, from you know, their discouraging circumstances to sort of perceive and embrace sort of the big picture of God's coming kingdom. It's, in other words, if they could begin, the idea is if they could begin grasping that, the, you know, the kingdom of God was already prepared in heaven, they would find their discouragement melting away and replaced by a renewed motivation to do what the Lord was, was calling them to do. 
namely to rebuild that temple, to reform their society and reorder their lives and the community around the priorities and expectations of God's coming kingdom. A reality really that's bound up with God's promise to return, which is the key word you see in our text. And this will be fleshed out in, uh, as we go through the prophecy um, section by section, turning to the night visions next Sunday. And I look forward to the opportunity to work through all of this with you, and I know you'll get a lot out of it. But we begin with chapter 1, these first six verses, just a brief sermon this evening. Um, this opening oracle really establishes uh, really a fitting foundation for the rest of the book. Given the situations described, we might expect the Lord to speak a word of great encouragement to these discouraged people. We might anticipate something that would you know, lift the spirits of the people. But instead, we notice the word that comes is uh, an abrupt and pointed call to return to the Lord. In other words, to repent. Before any visions are unveiled or promises are proclaimed, the Lord calls Zechariah to preach a message of repentance to these people. The visions of hope and all that and of the coming kingdom will eventually follow, but not for another three to four months in the timeline of history, but in the timeline of the uh, book of Zechariah, we'll get to that next Sunday. So now is the time for the people to enter into a, a sustained period of reflection, uh, repentance, and covenant recommitment. Zechariah's ministry among his generation begins with a call to renewal. Everything else that follows is built on that foundation, on, or on this foundation. And this opening section here starts out by rehearsing the past. I'll kind of look in the rearview mirror, if you like. Uh, it, it, it does so by drawing attention to the history, uh, a, a, a rather ugly history of covenant breaking, of which the current generation has been made heir. So that's in verse 2. The Lord, as we read in verse 2, of God's wrath in the past, he says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Uh, your fathers in this context refers to the generations that lived prior to the exile, and especially the generation upon whom the exile came. Previous generations had, had you know, continually and persistently provoked the Lord to anger, uh, you know, stoking his ire. And the root of the Hebrew word for anger is used twice in verse 2, once in the verbal form and once in the noun form. And most English translations, including the English Standard Version, seek to communicate this, what's called a doubling effect, uh, by rendering it very angry. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. And that was because years of covenant breaking, uh, uh, idolatry, um, syncretism, 
moral failure, hypocritical worship, uh, social injustice of all kinds, unapproved alliances with other nations, corrupt leadership, the list goes on. Years of that had stretched the Lord's patience to its breaking point, and that was the cause of his wrath and its consequences, the exile. <coughs> I like how one, described, one uh, commentator described it. The exile was not a random disaster, an act of God in the insurance industry jargon, an unpredictable freak event that no one could have anticipated. Rather, it was an act of God in the strict sense, an outpouring of the curses threatened in Deuteronomy on covenant breakers, citing Deuteronomy 28 and verses 36 and 37 in particular. And so what we see here is this, this first sentence out of this prophet's mouth compels his contemporaries to confront an unwelcome truth, to face up to the bad news that the Lord is a God who acts in anger against sin and covenant breaking, his, his holy wrath, that ire is a reality to be reckoned with. It remains a threat to the people. It's real. But paradoxically, concealed within the bad news are also the, the, what we might call the seeds of the good news. Though the Lord was very angry with your fathers, it's implied he's not necessarily angry with you. There may be a bright future beyond the judgment. That's sort of what's being set up here. <clears throat> and it's this observation that brings us to the, the central thrust of this opening oracle. Zechariah calls those of his generation, his contemporaries, to do what their fathers failed to do, to take heed to the word of the Lord and to repent. And verse 3 puts the matter very plainly, doesn't it? Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And you see there how that has uh, uh, both, contains both a gracious promise and an equally gracious invitation. The invitation is return to me. And the promise is, I will return to you. How wonderful to see the sovereign Lord of hosts here taking the initiative to come to his people, to reach out to them through the prophet Zechariah, and to, to call them back to a renewed relationship with him, a restored relationship with him, restoration to God's favor. You see, that is possible by way of repentance. The message is simple. When you turn to the Lord, you will find him turning to you. These are wonderful words. The good news about God. It is the good news that God is like the father in that parable of the prodigal son. That's the image here. And so if you know that parable, you pretty much understand the text, and I could probably just sit down. Remember how that story goes in Luke 15, though? As the young offender, the son who strayed, returns, he begins his journey of return. 
right? Jesus tells us with the image of the Father, which kind of illustrates the promise in our text, right? He says, but while he was still a long way off, as, as the son's returning, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And then later in that parable, we read of a great feast of celebration with music, dancing, and uh, uh, to rejoice at the prodigal's return. That's our God. God is that kind of character, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. A sure receiver of the repentant, like that father, ready to restore, ready to embrace and blessed from out of the depths of his steadfast love and his abounding grace and his immeasurable mercy. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. It's a lovely promise, isn't it? A promise based on the mercy of the forgiving, compassionate God who receives graciously all who turn to him with all their heart and with all their soul. No matter how wicked they've been, no matter how guilty they are, you see the past is not determinative of the future. Repentance can bring about a new beginning, a fresh start. And that, that restoration And then the verses that follow, um, just going quickly through the text, Zechariah now issues a stern warning. Okay, he says, if the people did not return to the Lord, then they will face the same fate as their fathers. And so the warning is, do not be like your fathers, your forefathers. Those past generations were characterized by, by, by hardness of heart. And, and just uh, uh, a, a, a stiff neckedness, if that's the right word. And Zechariah describes how when the Lord repeatedly sent the prophets to, to urge the people to turn from their wicked ways and to repent of their evil deeds, the people largely ignored their pleas. They did, and as the text says here, they did not hear or pay attention to me declares the Lord. That's a serious problem. And so the former generation reaped the bitter consequences of God's wrath, his ire, the very angry part. In due course, their unrepentant disobedience, their covenant breaking, and refusal to pay attention to the Lord and his word ended in the judgment that they deserved. Their fathers had ignored the warnings of the former prophets and had suffered the disaster of the exile as a, as a result. And that's described in verse 5 in kind of a word picture where, about, uh, uh, where it portrays this as God's word overtaking them. As a, uh, as, a, as a fleeing thief might be apprehended by justice in pursuit. That's kind of what the, what the word connotes. 
were overtaken. Like justice caught up with them, in a sense. And fearing the recurrence of God's judgment, Zechariah exhorted the new generation here to, ref to, to reflect on the past, to, to recall their history. They must not follow the footsteps of their forefathers, but instead submit themselves to the Lord's words and statutes. God's word, that word stands forever. That, whether threat or promise, that word will, will surely be fulfilled and it will come to pass. God means what he says. It's his word. And he has done exactly as he has said, which serves as a warning to the current generation, listening to Zechariah, lest they take God's word lightly and reap the dreadful consequences. This serves also as an encouragement to those who earnestly seek God. His promise the promise of his word will unfailingly come to pass. Come to pass. And so verses 3 through 6 form this unified argument to urge the people to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past and instead to return to the Lord in the present. Return to him. Return. That's, that's the key word in, in this passage. It's used four times in four verses. The Lord's faithfulness has not, had not changed. His promises, though seemingly dormant, were not dead, even though there were reasons for discouragement all around the people. There was a world of hope lying before them. And the doorway into that world was repentance. If they would return to the Lord, then he promised he would return to them. And Zechariah's words were not without effect, right? We, I think that's what the last se section, the last like, clause in verse 6 um, is actually saying. There's some debate here, but and this, because the Hebrew language has no quotation marks. But I think the word they most likely refers to Zechariah's audience and his generation when it says, so they repented. It's probably not talking about the fathers, but it's talking about the people who are hearing Zechariah say this. They repented. In stark contrast to their fathers, who were not changed even by the experience of the exile, the new generation was not inattentive to the Lord's voice resonating through the prophets. They responded positively to his call to repentance, for they recognized the validity and the gravity of God's judgment. And, and so they confessed in verse 6, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. That's some thoughts for application um, that mostly come from, from one of the commentaries that I've enjoyed and learned a lot from by Ian Dugan. But um, Starting with this, that this opening oracle, note how it describes uh, two groups of people who respond to God's word in different ways. Okay, the former generation, the fathers prior to the exile, heard God's word repeatedly through all the prophets and yet did not respond to it. They didn't hear, they didn't pay attention to it. And in consequence, they were buried by the wrath of God. 
and overtaken. The present generation, however, responded positively to the call to return to the Lord. And therefore, they may anticipate a different future, namely the turning of the Lord's face towards them in favor and blessing instead of anger and curse. And isn't that the case in our own generation too, in the church? The church includes men and women whose situation reflects that of both groups. Every one of us here present is a sinner who has heard the word of God over and over again, repeatedly. Every one of us experiences to some extent the effects of sin and, and the brokenness of our lives and, and all of that. This passage addresses very directly those who are living carelessly sinful lives, whose position is analogous to that of the previous generation in the text. And it could also be noted in this connection that it, it, our text teaches us uh, or, or kind of highlights how causes us to kind of reflect on how sin has two basic dimensions. And of course, more can be said, but just what emerges from this text is first, it involves a failure to listen and respond to God's word. If that was true in Zechariah's day when God's word was delivered through the prophets, <clears throat> like in our text, how much more? Like this is the argument in the epistle to the Hebrews. How much more is it sinful for us to fail to hear the, the climactic final word of God now delivered through his son. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So that's the first thing. And then secondly, the second dimension of sin is that this neglect of God's word flows into all manner of evil habits and actions. Sinful acts flow out of a sinful attitude of turning away from God. None of us can escape to con the conviction of such sweeping categories. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just as the ancient Israelites broke the covenant made with, with them at, at Mount Sinai, so all of us have failed to keep God's law on a fundamental level. We are all covenant breakers. And that being the case, and this passage sets before us a fearful reality, does it not? That God's judgment upon covenant breakers is sure. It is sure. The exile had demonstrated that once and for all. Sin has covenant consequences. Its wages are death, we're told in the New Testament, and those wages must ultimately be collected. And that remains as true today in the New Covenant era as it was then. This is what's commonly called the bad news of the gospel. It is that. However, Zechariah reminded his hearers that the past, as I said earlier, the past does not need to dictate the future. Restoration to God's favor is possible. If the present generation were to return to the Lord, remember, they would find the Lord returning to them. But repentance starts with the recognition of God's holy justice. The people of Zechariah's day needed to see that the Lord is 
justified in his judgment. His righteous wrath is a reality to be reckoned with. But repentance includes turning from wickedness and turning to God. And so the reassuring truth is that just as sin has sure consequences, so does repentance. So does repentance. Those who turn to God may be confident that he will not turn them away. His grace and his love are ready to receive sinners, to welcome the penitent with arms wide open. He's generous and, and fulsome in his pardon to repentant prodigals. He delights in their return. Like that father in the parable Jesus told. Also in that commentary I was telling you about, the, the, the question is raised. I just wanted to share this with you as well. The question then is raised as we think through these things of how then can God be both the sure judge of sinners and the sure receiver of the repentant? How can that be? How can God be that? And there, of course, is a single answer to that question. I'll just leave you with this. God forgives our sins. And then you know the answer. It's here in symbolic form. God forgives our sins because they've already been paid for at the cross. The God-man, our substitute, had, has already settled the debt for all of his covenant-breaking children. We look to the cross of Christ. We point to his broken body and shed blood. And we say, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Beloved, he has dealt with us by dying for us. And you see, that death of our Savior is on the one hand the, the fullest revelation of the righteous wrath of God. In that death where he suffered the full extent of that wrath for us, and thus by strict justice, God cannot demand payment for our sins from us. As we turn to God and place our faith in Jesus, Christ and him crucified, we, we may be sure, we may be certain of being received by the Father for Jesus' sake through his merit. We need not despair. Even though our lives are presently still deeply marked by the effects of sin. At the same time, that cross, the death of Jesus, is the fullest revelation of the love of God. Because he was slain upon the cross for us, God robes us in his righteousness. And he's, he's glad, delighted to receive us with, with those the arms wide open in bounteous grace as we return to him in penitent faith. And to, as it were, kiss us, just like in that parable, and embrace us. When we return to him, and when we do that, when we repent and believe in Jesus, 
our covenant-keeping Savior. All that he secured for us by his death becomes very real and very now, very contemporary, right? His body was broken in death for me. His blood was shed in death for me. We can all say that. And this should fill our hearts with profound thanksgiving and call us to renewed consecration as we eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you this evening with heart, in response to your word with hearts filled with gratitude for the timeless truth 